Matthew 22, 36 through 40. What I really want to lay out today, and what I really want to take a look at, is um, our relationship with God. Staying in relationship with God. I preached about that a couple months ago, and it's really what's on my heart again today, is staying in relationship with God. Matthew 22, 36 through 40 starts, says, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? These are the Pharisees addressing Jesus. And Jesus responds and said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. For this is the great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Of these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Let's pray one more time. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for bringing us together this morning. God, I'm asking that your word comes alive, comes to life in our lives today, God, and going forward. God, I ask that you help our hearts and our minds to be stayed on you as we go through your word, God, that it's not just my word going forth, God, but that, that your word goes forth and impacts our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. They asked Jesus what the most important commandment was, and I've summarized this before, but it was love God and love people. The most important thing to God is love and is our relationship with him and our relationship with others. We look at the conflicts going on around the world and everybody around the world knows that that's not right. You can scroll through Facebook and you can see a lot of people saying that Gaza and the Palestinians need to just get off Israel's back. And you see a lot of people saying that Israel needs to get off Gaza's back and the Palestinians' back. And they're blaming around the world people have already picked a side on who's right and who's wrong. But they need to come together because that's God's plan, is that they work together. You look at Russia and Ukraine, they need to come to an agreement. They need to conduct with love and care and concern towards their brothers. It's important for us to remember as we go through life, what's the goal? What's our main purpose? To keep our eyes on the prize, to keep our eyes focused on that relationship with God. Amen. We've seen another scripture that says God is love. Love is the embodiment of who God is, and we have to reflect God's love into this world. One of the biggest things our world is missing is love. People are hurting. They're dealing with depression and anxiety. Those are almost opposites of love. People are hurting. People are feeling rejected. People feel alone. We are the most connected generation, but science has shown we're also the most isolated generation. We have a generation that has come so focused on what I want, what I like, what I need. It's all about me. We have iPhones, iPads. <laughs> we have all the i products. But you you go through your social media. Facebook's entire game is to keep you engaged. They make their money off ad revenue. The more time you spend on Facebook, the more money Facebook makes. It's their business model. So it makes sense that they've tailored their app, tailored their website to be something that you're interested in. 
Facebook's algorithms pays attention to what you spend time looking at on Facebook. It notices when you scroll past a post and it notices when you stop and read a post. It notices when you take time to comment on a post. And the more you engage with that post, the more Facebook says this is something that's important to you. And it starts trying to identify what's important to you and what's not important to you and feed you what is important to you. We live in a, a world that has become so tailored to what you want. We've got McDonald's, whose slogan is, I'm loving it. You've got Burger King, whose slogan is, have it, is it, have it your way, isn't it? Have, I think it's just, have it your way. A world that's so tailored to self. But God's plan is for us to be in relationship with others. Value is found in relationship with others. Fulfillment is found in your relationship with others. Even in prison, one of the worst punishments you can get is being put in solitary confinement, being isolated from others. As people, we need that human connection with each other and we need our connection with God. We need to be in relationship with God. The definition of sin is things that separate us from God. You look at back to the creation story. God creates Adam and Eve and he puts them in the midst of the garden. Uh, Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. When God put Adam in the garden, his purpose was for him to take care of the garden, to be a steward of the garden, to be a manager of that garden. It wasn't to, to just sit around all day, but it was, it was to be actively engaged. People need things to do. People go crazy when they don't have things to do. God put Adam in the garden to do things. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of the tree of the garden you shall eat freely, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day thou eatest of it thou shalt surely die. God was setting boundaries with Adam. You can go anywhere and do anything you want. This is your hobby. Just take care of the garden, but don't touch that tree. And anybody who spent any time around little kids, the second you say, don't touch that, <laughs> that's the first thing they're looking to touch. <laughs> first thing you say, don't do this, that's the first thing they're wanting to do. As the story goes on, Eve eats of the, guard, eats of the forbidden fruit, she feeds it to Adam. And God comes back to the garden. He's... Adam, where are you? And Adam says, I'm hiding. I'm hiding in the garden. When you offend somebody, it puts a separation there. When Adam offended God and did the thing that he was told not to do, it separated him from God. And even as much as they, as they tried working it back out with God, God had to remove them from the garden for their own safety. But God still wanted a relationship with God. Or God still wanted a relationship with man. And as we go through the entire Bible, we see this pattern of God trying 
to get in relationship with man. But God won't mix holy and unholy, and God is holy. And so for us to be in relationship with God, we have to separate ourselves out. We have to cleanse ourselves. We have to be holy. And if you want to see what God's expectations of us are, you can go read through his plan for the priests before they were to even enter into the temple, the cleansing process they had to go through, before going into the holiest of holies once a year, the cleansing process they had to go through. Such detail and everything that they had to do to make sure that they were clean and holy before coming into the presence of God. But God wanted to be in relationship with man. You see God established a promise with Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord has said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great. Thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse them that curse thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God made a promise to Abram, whose name was later changed to Abraham, that there would be blessings upon his family. God was coming into relationship with Abraham's family. The Jews still talk to this day about the God of Abraham and their forefathers. You see it all through the New Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're recognizing that that, that is their God, was in relationship with Abraham. Joseph moves his family to Egypt. Or Joseph, I guess, was in Egypt. Joseph, Joseph didn't make the decision to go to Egypt. Circumstances sent Joseph to Egypt. It, oh yeah, actually, my notes is Joseph moved his family to Egypt. Once he was in Egypt, he then brought all of his family with him into Egypt. Once they made that connection during after the um, during the famine. So they're all in Egypt, but that's not where God wanted them. And you can see that's not the land that was promised to them. And they end up in slavery. And God again brings them out, or not again, I said, but God brings them out of slavery and gets in relationship with Abraham's people again. In Joshua 1 through 1 3, Joshua 1 3 says, Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses. When Moses was on Mount Sinai, God established a government system where God was the head. It's the Mosaic Law, it's Levitical Law, it's the Book of Leviticus, it's the Book of Deuteronomy. It's a very detailed law about what God's expectations were for the Jewish people. God had found a people to be in relationship with him. And you see that these people pull away from God, come back to God, pull away from God. And in, in a time of, of rebellion, they asked for, I don't know if rebellion is quite the right word, but they, they were settling for some second best, and they, they wanted a human leader. They wanted a leader that they could physically lay their eyes on, so God gives them Saul. They have King Saul, who was not a good king. Then you have King David, who was a much better king, a much better leader. 
And as you go through the kings, you see that some of the kings drew the people closer to God, and some kings drew the people away from God. You see King Josiah, even at such a young age, bringing Israel back into relationship with God. He understood that there was nothing more important than our relationship with God. When we can stay in relationship with God, he takes care of us. When we stay in relationship with God and we align with his plan, things tend to work out in life. In the short term, they may not work out the way we want them to work out, but in the long term, when you look back, you see God's hand through all of your roughest moments. We all, anybody who's been in the church for an extended period of time can tell you of a testimony or share a story where they've seen God's hand in hindsight in their most difficult moments. You look back on it and go, wow, I'm glad that happened. I've had a handful of friends that have served in the military, and all of them have said the same thing to me. They go, you know what? I wouldn't do it again, but I'm glad I did it. I wouldn't recommend you do it, but I'm glad I did it. Because going through those difficult times develops us. Going through those difficult times changes us. And when we go through difficult times in our life, it just reveals who God is. When we hit those places in life where we have to get down on our knees and say, God, I can't do this without you, we then get to see his power unfold. So we look through the, we look through the whole New Testament, and there's, there's a lot of stories. Look at the story of, of Daniel. The world tells Daniel, stop worshiping your God. And Daniel still says, well, that's where I draw the line. I'm going to keep worshiping my God. Three times a day, he's out there praying. And he gets thrown in his lion's den. It looks like trouble. But when we can keep God first in our life, when we can prioritize our relationship with God, he takes care of the lions. He shuts their mouths. God wants relationship with man. But sin separates us from God. And when that sin separates us from God, it has to be atoned for. In the Jewish culture, they, in, in modern, modern Jewish culture, they look at, you become an adult at 12 years old, and before that, you're on a, I, I, heard a, I heard a father describe this to his 12-year-old child. As they're turning 12, he says, you know what this means? He says, now you're accountable to God for your actions. You're no longer living on my credit card. You're living on your own credit with God. In that we have to stay in that relationship with God. When we sin, it separates us from God. We're building a debt that we cannot pay. And through the Old Testament, to atone for that debt, they would slaughter a sheep. They'd slaughter a lamb. But in the New Testament, the lamb's already been slaughtered. In the New Covenant, we've got Jesus. And as we go into this new year, 
this communion service, I wanted to look at the crucifixion story. I wanted to I wanted to just read through it and really just get a picture once again of what Christ did for us and what God has done to get back into relationship with us. So Matthew 27, we read a lot of verses here. Matthew 27, 26 through 51 is what we're going to be reading through. Matthew 27, 26 says, Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered him, the whole band of soldiers, and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head, a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee to him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled him to bear his cross. And when they were coming to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted his garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there. And set up over set up over his head this accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand, the other on the left. And they passed by, reviled him, wagging their heads, saying, Thou that destroyest thy temple and buildest up in three days, Save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. You know, that's a really interesting challenge there where they say, if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Because they're putting their humanistic thinking and not understanding what's really going on. Their challenge of saying, if you're really all powerful, then do things my way. If thou be the Son of God, come down from that cross. But that wasn't his plan. That wasn't his plan. Likewise also the chief priest mocked him. And the scribes and elders said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was a darkness over the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani, 
That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard that, said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let us, let us be, let us see whether Elias will come and save him. Jesus, when he cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. You know, something else that we see in this story is could have Jesus delivered himself from the cross? Maybe, maybe not. But had he delivered himself from the cross? the story would not be the same. What makes this story so profound was not just that he, that he died. What makes this story so important is to make sure that he was dead, they stabbed him with a spear. The soldiers stabbed him with a spear. They're just going to make sure that he's 100% dead. We don't want any doubt about it. And then they put him in a tomb, and the high priest made sure we're going to seal that tomb up. We're going to put guards there. We're going to make sure that the only way that he gets out of there is an act of God. That's what they did. There's only one explanation. There's only one explanation for how Jesus rose from the dead and got out of that tomb. And that is that he is God. Amen. There's only one explanation. They, they high priest covered all their bases. They said that the, the, his disciples said he was going to try to rise from the dead. So, so that they can't play a trick on us, we're going to put guards by the, t- by, the, by the tomb to make sure that they don't come steal his body out. We're going to make sure that the only way that he gets out We're going to make sure that it's impossible for this to happen. The world will rise up and make things look impossible. But when we put it in God's hands, there's only going to be one explanation for how it comes together, and that's going to be by his power. And that's what we see here. The reason why the story is so profound is because there's only one explanation. And that is that Jesus is God. You go into Romans 5, 6 through 8. It says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for the sinners. I mean, he he did die for the sinners. He didn't die for the godly. He didn't die for the righteous. Paul goes on to say here, and he's talking to the Romans. We know a thing or two, two about the Romans, the Roman Empire. These were very proud people, very arrogant people. For scarcely for a righteous man would one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I see this passage and I, and I think about trying to call somebody. It rings and rings and rings and rings and they don't answer. So the next day, 
try calling them again. And the next day you try calling them again. And they don't want to talk to you. But your love for them is you keep reaching out. And that's where God is. God's ready to respond to us as soon as we reach out to him. He's there as soon as we reach out to him. He's calling each and every one of us. And he wants us to pick up and take that call. But we get so wrapped up in the deception of the devil that I'm not good enough to talk to him. I'm not good enough for what he did for me. I've slid too far. I could never come back. But none of that's true. None of that's true. He's there and he wants a relationship with each and every one of us. He will pick up that relationship with each and every one of us where we're at and draw us closer to him. And he will keep drawing us closer to him. I started off with the scripture. Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love, the, love thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. So the most important thing is your heart, so, your heart soul, and mind. is body, soul, and spirit. It's, it's every part of your essence. It's your physical body, your mental body, and who you are as a person. So every part of you needs to love God. This is the first of the great command. Second, I'd like to do is love thy neighbor as thyself. That is the most important point that Jesus wanted to drive home. That is the most, because he goes on to say all the law and the prophets hang on, hang on these two commandments. Every, you know, the entire Bible is summarized into loving God and loving people. But there was something else that God wanted to drive home. Another point that God wanted to drive home, that Jesus drove home before his crucifixion. And that's in Luke chapter 22, verses 19 through 20. Go to Luke 22, 19 through 20, if you could stand. Luke 22, 19 through 20. This is, this is the, the Lord's Supper, as it's, as it's colloquially known, or not colloquially known, as it's known, the Lord's Supper. And it says, And he took bread, and he gave thanks, and he brake it, and gave unto them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. In Corinthians, the way this story is recorded, or Paul references it, is that Jesus said, do this oft in remembrance of me. Jesus didn't want us to ever forget what he did on Calvary for me, for Sister Terry, for Peter, Brother Leroy, Brother Corey, and everybody else across the entire world that that are still have their back turned to him. So as we take this cup, we gotta be a little strategic pulling back these flaps. We're gonna take this wafer. And I'm gonna lead us in prayer and then we'll take the wafer after we pray. Lord, as we take this, as we take this wafer, this unleavened bread in remembrance of you, 
God, I ask that you help us to fall on a pure heart. Coming to you in repentance, first of all, to get any sin out of my life, God, as I come back to you, as I return back to you, Lord, to worship you with my heart, with my body, with my soul, with my spirit, and every part of within me. All right, we'll now take this wafer. Remembrance of him. Then for this cup, which is just simple Concord grape juice. Take this in remembrance of the blood, the cleansing power of that blood that we've all received in our life. Take that now. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, thank you for what you've done for us. Lord, thank you for what you did on Calvary for each and every one of us. God, I thank you for your spiritually healing power that you've had to heal our spirits.